Reducing Crime podcast brings you conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Sean Barnes is the police chief in Madison, Wisconsin. A new documentary follows Chief Barnes and two other black police officers as they undertake a historic civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. I chat with Sean about his embracing of education and evidence-based policing, the challenges of working with communities in the post-George Floyd world, and the lessons he took away from his three-day trek across Alabama. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe, and welcome to Reducing Crime. This month sees the release of a new film, The 54th Mile Policing Project. The 17-minute documentary follows three black police officers who undertake the historic civil rights walk from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. The Selma to Montgomery march was one of a number of civil rights protests that occurred in 1965. An initial attempt to complete the march saw Alabama state troopers beat the group at the Edmund Pettus Bridge with whips and nightsticks. Televised images from the incident shocked America and are credited with spurring not only greater awareness of civil rights issues, but also the eventual passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 a few months later. In the process of undertaking the walk, spurred by the awful murder of George Floyd, the three officers discuss life challenges, being honest, open and vulnerable, talking about being black and blue, and wanting to be more than just a figurehead talking change. The documentary is, in many ways, a metaphor for pushing through challenges and adversity to achieve real meaningful life goals. It's also a window into three thoughtful men discussing the zeitgeist and their place in the world. The three officers are Tarek Maguire, Deputy Police Chief in Arlington, Texas, Dr. Obed Magni, who recently left policing and is now an executive coach and leadership speaker in the area of emotional intelligence, and my guest for this episode, Sean Barnes. Sean Barnes has been Chief of Police for Madison, Wisconsin since February 2021. Chief Barnes was the Deputy Chief of Police in Salisbury, North Carolina, and before that, he rose to captain with the Greensboro, North Carolina Police Department, where he began his career as a patrol officer in 2000. Like his fellow walkers, Sean is a National Institute of Justice lead scholar, and he is a council member on the National Policing Institute's Council on Policing Reforms and Race. His policing focus has been on neighbourhood beat-level policing, stressing police neighbourhood ownership and community engagement. Dr. Barnes has a BA in History and Pre-Law and a Master's Degree in Criminal Justice from the University of Cincinnati. And he was awarded a PhD in Leadership Studies from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. I sat down with Sean at last year's American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference. By the way, a conference I highly recommend. He discusses being a black police leader, racial profiling and racial bias in a post-George Floyd world, and big questions such as, would you rather be hit by a semi-trailer truck or kick a Pomeranian dog? And listen to the episode, it'll make sense. As you join us, we were just chatting about Sean's fellow walker, Obed Magni, who, if you don't know him, is kind of shredded. One of the most annoying things about Obed is that every now and again I follow his gym sessions. I mean, I try to do something in the gym, but I turned up here and it's, his arms are like my fucking waist. I know. You obviously look after yourself, but he is a monster for the gym. I worked out with him once and 
he had to go to Instagram to complain that the hotel gym dumbbells only went up to 55 pounds. That's like, oh man, first of all, they're not trying to get sued for killing someone. So you guys know each other since when, sorry? Uh, 2016. And you met through the Leeds program? The Leeds program, yeah. So how long have you been in law enforcement? I've been in law enforcement for 15 years. Was a, a captain, got promoted pretty quick up through the ranks. Was fortunate to have a chief that really believed in evidence-based policing and kind of pushed that thing forward. Wait a minute, I've heard they're mythical. Where is yeah. this magical beast? Yeah. Yeah. Where, where uh, was this? This was in Greensboro. You actually found a police chief who, yeah. who was into evidence-based policing? He was, he was. How do we clone that person? It's uh, <laughs> a good question. But yeah, he was into it and he certainly um, allowed me to experiment. Before the Leeds program, I was contacted from a company called Hunch Lab and they had a software program called Predictive Policing. Right. This is Xavier. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. They're, they're based in Philadelphia. Very smart people from that company, yeah. Hunch Lab was their predictive policing software program, and then it was purchased by ShotSpotter, yes. Right, so I conducted the first quasi-experiment led by a police officer or a police department on its effectiveness. Um, at the time, we worked a four-on, four-off schedule, so half patrol work, half patrol didn't. So it was pretty easy to set up a quasi-experiment, kind of looking at that, uh, along with uh, Dr. Lee Hunt, yeah. who I think you know. Yeah. Did the ideas of evidence-based policing kind of gel with you, or, or, or when your chief started this, were you like, what the hell is this? Not at all. This is the way I'd always policed. I had uh, got a master's degree from the University of Cincinnati, so learning under Robin Engel and John Eck, and uh, some of those persons that kind of turned on that light bulb inside of me. Yeah, did you get classes from anybody we've heard of? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. John Eck's like a luminary in this field, and of course yeah. Robin Engel's been known through policing for many years. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I met them, and they kind of just turned the light bulb on, but I've always been interested in doing things better. Even as a young police officer, you know, I took accountability of my area. I remember one story where we were getting crushed where this guy kept breaking into stores to steal the flat screens when they when they first came out. And, you know, I went to the analyst and got some data and literally predicted that he was hitting on Wednesdays and caught him in the act. And this is, I'm two years in as a police officer. Nice, I was, I was all in. And from there, I was just all in, wanted to know more. Yeah, data evidence going to make us look good. Absolutely, absolutely. So you made it up to Captain in Greensboro? In Greensboro, that's correct. And you're originally from? I'm originally from a very small town called Murfreesboro, North Carolina. Yeah, not it Tennessee. Small, yeah, it is a small town because I've never heard of it. It's very important because Robert Vaughn, who invented the cure for smallpox, is from there. Charles Gatlin, who invented the Gatlin gun. You may have heard of it. It kind of revolutionized policing. So what, what sort of town is this that one end you've got the Gatlin gun and then you've got a smallpox cure? It's a, it's a town that... that uh, <laughs> it we, seems like it's extremes at each end. You know? It is extremes at, at each end. Uh, yeah, we... How can we save as many people as possible? No, fuck it. How can we kill as many people as possible? Absolutely. Yeah, he invented something that revolutionized, I think... Uh, law enforcement. I don't know if he knew it at the time, but he's from there. It's a, it's a pretty good small town. Um, it's a, a town that borders Virginia. So most of the people in my town growing up, they work at Newport News Shipbuilding in right. Virginia. And so for me, I spent summers at Virginia Beach because it was only an hour away, you know, right. getting into all kind of mischief, I should say. Yeah, you know, but as long as it doesn't appear on Instagram, you're all right. Eh? Yeah, it was no Instagram back then. Thank, thank God. Oh, I know, right? I wouldn't yeah, be I sitting could. here. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> So you were getting into the idea of evidence-based policing with leadership driving that, which is great. So you ended up applying for the LEADS program? I ended up applying for the LEADS program. They sent a solicitation to my boss at the time. 
a deputy chief and, and he was like, this sounds like you. So he called me in his office and said, hey, you're interested in this. I took it back. I looked at it and I had completed the hunch lab experiment. So I thought it was a pretty good demonstration project. And I got selected, met a lot of great people that we're still friends with to this day, bouncing ideas off. And that kind of spawned into my graduate work, going back to school, getting a PhD and just trying to understand a little bit more about science and how science can influence decision making and policing. So you managed to survive the experiences of Mo McGough and then the two weird uncles, Gary Cordner and Jeff Alpert. Yes, Jeff Alpert helped guide me through my PhD work in racial profiling and traffic stops. So he became kind of like a surrogate father to me and uh, very encouraging and Gary as well. So, yeah, those are my people. Tell me about the, the work that you did, the racial profiling work. I realized that as a captain, uh, halfway through, well, halfway through my dissertation, I realized you actually have to write this thing. So I, said, I know, that's a pain, isn't it? <laughs> i got to figure out I'm really topic. enjoying this. Let's make academia as unfun as possible. You do all this really cool work, and then you have to write it up. Oh, man. And then you have to write it up. And I, and I was all over the place. Do I do predictive policing? Do I do something else? And then I, I realized October of 2016, I think, our department was on the front page of the New York Times as the face of racial profiling. You know. Do you remember that w- article? Yeah. You kind of think. When somebody says to you in policing, hey, we're on the front page of the newspaper, you know the rest of what follows in that sentence is not going to end well. It did not end well at all. And I just happened to be standing next to the chief when that came out. And he said, hey, can you fix this? Uh, (laughs) And I said, "Uh, uh, yeah. And I just got into it. But, you know, I realized that, you know, as a black man in policing, you know, people come up to you with all kind of questions. I, Mm -hmm. I had never had anyone who wasn't black ask me, what do I do when I'm stopped by the police? Mm hmm. There's almost a inevitability that if you're black, you're going to get stopped right at some point. And um, it really resonated with me. And I started doing some research and I came across an article entitled Toward a Better Benchmark. Uh, Jeff Alpert was on it. I think mm-hmm. Robin Engel was on it and a couple of others. And it was this idea that you have to understand the benchmark before you can understand the measurement. And it really, really stuck with me. I just started getting into it. And then the other idea I had was that who's responsible for racial profile? Mm-hmm. And I think it's bigger than just some rogue officer or as we say in policing, which I hate, the bad apple. Right. And so I said, well, what about leadership? What does leadership have to do with it? And so I started looking at racial profiling from a standpoint of leadership. Where are we telling people to go and what are we telling them to do? This whole idea of hot spots. And I discovered that racial disparities in stops does exist, but it exists Uh, Only in certain areas. If you look at a highway, you'll find that more white females are being stopped. But if you look at areas of high crime where we as leaders tell people, go there, do something, because I got Comstat in the morning, then you see it. And so we have to do a better job in leadership of giving good direction to understand how that affects people. Maybe there's also a piece about educating the community that there's a conflict here, which is if you're going to send police to an area, you do so because you hope they're going to reduce crime and violence. But if all the crime and violence, or as much of the crime and violence is focused in minority areas, unless you expect the police to do absolutely nothing when they get there, there's going to be disparity. But I think there's that gulf between the understanding between what is disparity and what is discrimination. That's right. That's right. That's right. And what you have to do is you have to let the community drive that. And so what we try to do in Madison is, you know, the captains, they work strategically under what we want them to do, but we want to bring the data to the community. We do a lot of community meetings, community groups, and we say, these are the number of cars that were stolen in your area. What do you think we should do about it? And guess what they're going to tell you? 
go out and put some bad guys, hold them accountable and prevent crime. Right. right. And then you go into routine activity theory. You talk about Felson and Coyne. Look at you, a police chief talking theory here. Right. I'm loving there this. You go, there, there you go. There you go. And it, it makes it sense makes, to them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and then from there you say, OK, what? Well, this is what it will look like. And then once you get their thumbs up, it's hard to come back and say, hey, you know. Right. You tap into some of their cognitive dissonance. Like, hold a minute, this is what you have asked us to do. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think enough chiefs and I don't think enough police departments are doing that. They they have this almost adversarial relationship with the community. And it's like, no, if you go and explain it in the right way and use the right kind of credible messengers, you can get the community to kind of tell you what they would like you to do. And that's democratic policing right there. That is the key. That, That is the key. Within the Constitution and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, because procedural justice is a, is a big part of that. So you'll tell them, they'll tell you what they want you to do. You'll tell them how you're going to do it. But then you also have to explain to you to them what the interaction should look like. You know, hey, this is how we'll talk to people. This is how we'll do that. We'll let people know, hey, we're not fishing. But hey, you know, you ran the light or you're going 70 and a 35. And we don't want that for our community. Right. I think that goes a long ways. That's a great way of putting it. You went through the Leeds Scholar experience, the law law enforcement advancing through data and science. Yeah, that was a bit, it's a bit of a tortuous one, isn't it? It is, I realized, (laughs) yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We got there in the end, but that's right, yeah. Yeah. So you went through that experience, you've intellectually, you found your tribe a little bit. Yes. And that's, I think that's a big thing, right? That helps, because there are are lots of people in the policing who are still stuck in, you know, the late 1970s. Yes, they are. And they are a strong bunch. Let me yeah. tell you, we are the exception to the rule, but we need to flip that. You know, they 80, 20, you've heard about We're about 20 percent right now. We have got to drive the others to think a little bit differently about how policing should be done uh, in America. Yes, there are bad guys that need to go to jail, but there's a way to do it. One of the, my favorite quotes from Jack Maple, and I paraphrase a little bit, is he said, you know, most police departments are the same. About 40 percent are hiding behind their desks. 40 percent are doing the job, but not having much energy 10 percent are actively seeking to undermine any good thing that you want to try and do yes. and 10 percent treat the job like a profession and that 10 percent of the top do 90 percent of the work but i'm a little fascinated by his understatement of the 10 percent at the bottom because that's the 1970s 1980s kind of crowd who are like no it's real simple we just need to arrest everybody and throw everybody up against the wall you know they're kind of the real knuckle draggers and they are holding back progress there's no doubt there yeah, they're holding back progress and they're creating discipleship every day. And so as a leader, you have to be strong enough to address it. I've always done it in my career as a rookie. I'm talking about I'm not even off probation, but I'm on my own. And, you know, you go out to eat it's 2 a.m. I'm a night shift there and they're like, hey, why are you taking so long on calls? Like, just give them the ticket and move on. Why are you over here? You haven't even got a call there yet. Why are you over there? You need to be available for calls for service and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And I'm like, listen, I have a badge. I have a patch that says city of I'm going to police. See you later. But most people don't have that. I guess you would call it moxie in order to do that. I've always had it. Did you say discipleship? Discipleship. Yes. Tell me about that. What happens is, you know, you come into policing and you realize that your recruit mates, they're gone off to their own squad. Right. And you're by yourself. And so police are pack animals. And so you want to find a group. You want to find a group that that's going to take you in. And they'll always take you in. Those groups that have you ever heard the phrase misery loves company? Yeah. Well, that's not true. Misery loves miserable company. Misery doesn't want to be around people who are happy. 
you know, so when someone says, hey, how's the wife? You know, that what they're looking to hear is you to complain and they can start complaining. But I'm always like, oh, she's great. Loves me to death. Made me breakfast in bed. They'll yeah, go the other way. There you go. There's a real conversation killer. <laughs> is your life as miserable as mine? Then I don't want to talk to you. That's exactly right. And some police officers are like that. They want to make everyone else as miserable as they are. And that's, they're often so successful, too. They are. I, I recently talked to a police officer who was interviewing for lieutenant. And he had one of the best interviews I'd ever had because he told me how miserable he was at work. And then he said he found out that you could actually be proactive and do good stuff. And he said for the first time, he admitted, hey, I was your curmudgeon. He just right. said it because we, you know, we knew who he was. And he said to me, he said, I never knew you could be happy at work. And I said, yeah, that's what happens when you're allowed to innovate, wow. when you're allowed to solve problems and problem solve. People tend to realize that you can be happy in this profession. You know, being kind of data driven and evidence based. I think the numbers are really useful and it always leaves me concerned when the only number a police officer can tell you is how many years he has to retirement. I never think that's a good sign. It's never a good sign. You know, cops and prisoners are about alike in that we all have the same conversation daily. How much time you got left? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. How many years did you do in Greensboro? So I did 15 in Greensboro and then I was asked to come to a little small town called Salisbury, North Carolina, just north of Charlotte. Bedroom community, about 40,000 people were experiencing crime above and beyond what most cities their size were occurring. And then they had an officer-involved shooting where they shot a black male during the service of what's commonly referred to as the no-knock search warrant. Right. Which is now, unfortunately, the Breonna Taylor warrant. Absolutely. Searches. Absolutely. And it just destroyed that community. And uh, the chief at the time had only been there for about six months. And I assume it was career ending for the police chief? Uh, no, it was. I mean, he had only been there for seven months. So he oh. had he had no relationships built. So for those new police chiefs who may be listening, spend time immediately building relationships in your community because it could happen on day two. For him, it happened way too soon. Yeah, the honeymoon period lost minutes, right? Yeah, yeah, he went straight to domestic disturbance, I think. I'd met him at something, and I don't know where, but he just called me out of the blue, asked me if I could come give him some advice, and I did. And then the city manager said, hey, we well, want to have dinner, and I did. And then what followed was a very generous offer sheet to leave Greensboro and come and help them with their community engagement and crime reduction. And what role did you take there then? I took the role as, as deputy chief. But before I took the role, I took the sheet back because I was fine at, at Greensboro. I talked it over with my wife and I wrote a bunch of stuff on the offer sheet. Right. And I said, God, if they agree to this, I was like, I want a Tahoe. I want this. Are you adding blue M&Ms in here and I'm that just, kind of thing? Yeah, I, I was like, I really love Hot Pockets. I need, I need as many as I can get in the morning. And I sent it over, and then they came back with, yeah, we'll give you a little bit more than what you asked for. And I said, okay, God, you do have a sense of humor. There you go. After all. Good for you. So I ended up taking the job, and you know, I was there for three years. We were a part of the Violent Crime Network. It's now called the Public Safety Partnership because our crime was higher than national average per capita. This doesn't sound like a dormitory suburb. It's, it was, it's, yeah, it was rough. It was not. Uh, yeah, but in the three years that I was there, we were able to reduce crime to an all-time low, 20-year low. And we solved every homicide we had in the three years I was there. We had no unsolved homicides. That's incredible. And you can't do that without community support. You cannot solve homicides at that rate without the community trusting you. And I was willing to be vulnerable, do some things that, that I thought were right, and there were times when my boss looked at me and said, I'm not going. 
I love him to death. We still talk every day. And, and I said, listen, we got to go talk to them. And he says, if you want to go have at it. But I've been here for three months. They've been calling me everything but a child of God. And so I need a break. Right. But we put in the work. Respect that, because at some point you've got to recognize that you are not the messenger for this process and you are not the person to get. I mean, I know that left, right and center being in this country with this accent. Right. You know, I, I can't pass myself off as coming from North Philadelphia. It's just not happening. No, no, not at all. But we embraced uh, stratified policing as our business model. Mm-hmm. We embraced procedural justice and community policing cops definition as our community service or our customer service model. And, and it really worked. And I think procedural justice is underappreciated by a lot of people in policing. It really is. And I think it's been sold as, okay, this is the right thing to do for the public. But the way to really sell it to cops is, this will help you get more compliance. It's going to be better for your officer safety and that of your colleagues. It it will. It will. And once again, I I owe him everything because he allowed me to really, I did all my evidence-based stuff and going to conference. Like, I think that could work here. And, you know, I'm sure all the officers was like, don't let him leave the city ever again. Because the next time he comes back with an idea... I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but Salisbury was my Petri dish. That's an entirely appropriate phrase if you grew up in the area where smallpox was cured, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's yes. in the blood, right? Yes, absolutely. First thing that I did was I got rid of the community policing officers. I got rid of them. That's quite a, if you think about it, that's, that's quite a provocative move because that's kind of one of those little things that every department feels like they have to have, right? Yes. So why did you do that? Because I was a Marine, and in the Marine Corps, we have a saying, every Marine is a basic rifleman, and we believe that. Whether you're the general or whether you're a buck private, you should be able to pick up your weapon mm-hmm. and defend your country. In policing, every police officer is a community policing officer. Absolutely. And what happens is, in police departments, we have these sections that are that are your community policing specialists. This is my air quotes, y'all. But air quotes work really well on podcasts. I know. Yeah. <laughs> And so everyone gives them all the work that they don't want to do. Right. And then you have these officers who aren't trained, who don't understand procedural justice. And it's someone else's job. Right. That's the thing. You've hit the nail on the head there. Once we form a squad, everybody goes, well, that's their issue. Absolutely. We've got a squad for that. So we got rid of that and we made it so that everyone got trained. I did emotional intelligence training. I did a training in customer service. I did a training called Path Elements, where you figure out what your personality style is. I'm slightly terrified to do that for myself. Yeah, yeah. it's like (laughs) wind, earth, fire. So this is real live uh, results. I don't need a personality test to tell me what my personality is. You know, that's what people on Twitter are for, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So 90% of my department were fire. Right. That tells you a lot about why the community felt the way they did about us. Even the chief was a fire. Now, I've done all of these. I've done that, Myers-Briggs, the DISC. I score equally in, in all of them. There you go. And I, and, and I knew that was going to be the case. You should be a case study of something. I think I should because the person who was leading, we hired a consultant. And she just kept was like, yeah, I think you're going to fit in well here. I'm like, I don't. Everyone is, you know, fire and brimstone and I'm just even kill. Well, if you think about policing, you know, policing attracts pretty much alpha males. And, that, and that's just the women. So. <laughs> but, yeah, that could be the case. Absolutely. So, you know, it's not like this is a job that people have got a lot of doubt. I mean, it's hard to have doubt in a job where you are sent with very little experience to go and deal with issues. You've got to solve them, figure out what's going on and make a decision and solve 
every single job that you go to. So there really isn't a lot of place for doubt. So it, it does attract a certain type of person, certainly if they stay in it. But doubt is one of those things that's really important to develop an interest in evidence-based policing. Your interest in evidence-based policing is really pushing up against that but I know what to do kind of mentality that we have, the fire mentality in policing. Right, right. But, you know, it's that quick fix. And the thing that always frustrated me as a patrolman was I just don't believe that it's a quick fix. You know, you go to a domestic and, you know, you arrest the aggressor and they're arguing about finances and now someone loses their job. It's a really good example. Yeah. You just made the cause of their disagreement worse. Right. And the original study, Minneapolis domestic violence experiment, I understand what they were trying to do. I understand that they were looking at what do we need to do so that we don't have to return. Maybe it should have been what do we need to do to fix their problem and not worry so much about how much time we're spending there. Yeah. Because that should be the goal in policing, right? It should be underlining causes figuring out what's wrong and getting them the service that that they need. And it shouldn't be in these quick fix. You know, yeah, I can arrest a person for domestic violence. And certainly I don't condone that type thing. No one does. But does that really fix the problem? And if it doesn't, we're, we're doing something wrong. Well, it's an interesting thing. It's always that rush to get back what we call into service. Yeah. But when you get back into service, you're actually not doing anything. That's right. You know, you're in service should be when you're actually trying to resolve this couple's issue right. to the stage where we get the best outcome for the people, not are we going to get called back again? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I wonder, do we create these unintended consequences of people who just don't call? Right. You know, yeah, I understand that I got abused by my husband, by my wife, but if they go to jail, mm -hmm. you know, how's that going to affect my finances? Or if you guys turn up, it's never ended better for me. Correct. Yeah. So you're in Salisbury and everything's going super duper. And then George Floyd happened. Yes. What was that like for you? George Floyd for me was uh, one of those moments where I didn't recognize the ramifications of it immediately. People were calling me who I knew who were African-American going, hey, did you see this video? And of course, I'm busy and I kind of look at it. The sound's off and I'm like, OK, yeah, I kind of see it. And I had similar experiences like, really, is this just another one of these, exactly. you know, kind and of excessive use of force? Yeah. Right. yeah. And, and I never saw it until I was like, whoa, hold on yep. a minute. Yep. And then, th you know, and then things will go back to normal. Yeah. Right. You know, we, we know the, the cycle, community outrage, protests, apology. The family says, hey, can everybody, you know, respect my dead loved one? Settlement. Might have no a little charges, investigation. Everything. Not a yeah. lot happens. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing for me is that we mentioned earlier those officers who rejected evidence-based policing, mm -hmm. those lock the them up. The dinosaurs. They came to my office and said, Chief, what the hell is this? Wow. And that's when I said, let me stop what I'm doing right, <laughs> and take a look at this because of their outrage. It's got to be kind of bad, right? Well, I had a similar experience when I walked into my office at Temple, and I'd only been in the States for three weeks. And I was walking past and some people were watching television. And I said, well, what, what are you watching? And somebody said, somebody just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. And I thought, oh, that's bad. But I had visions of like a Cessna 172, mm -hmm. like a four-seater. And then when I got down to my office and like everything shut down, 
I better look at this video again, see what's going on. Yes, it, w- it was certainly like that for me. Right. And, you know, Tark McGuire and Obed Magny, who are both uh, NIJ lead scholars, we had been planning uh, the year prior to go to Selma, Alabama, and kind of get a deeper dive into this issue of police community relations. But when George Floyd happened in the middle of a pandemic, which is why we delayed our walk, we all talked and said, you know what, it's now or never. What was the genesis of the idea for you? Tarek had went to Selma to visit and found himself on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He Bit of a pilgrimage almost then. Yeah, yeah he right. said he felt different there. Yeah. And he just started saying, hey, we should do this and we should document what we do and, and maybe take some photos. And I, I agreed to do it. You know, your friends call you and say, hey, man, let's walk 54 miles. All right, sure. Let's do it. Let me know. Right. And then you think about, wait a minute, what did you just say? Well, I didn't know much about it, but I had my suspicions because I obviously friends with Obed Magni. Yeah. And when he started to dump arms day for legs day, I thought, hold on a minute, something's yeah. up here, you know. Yes, yeah. no one wants legs day. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes legs day in the gym, right? Yeah. So, you know, we didn't train like alleged. I think I walked seven miles one day. I was like, oh, I'm ready. I feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were not prepared. Uh, they make these things called camel packs where you can put water in them. And you can, so the day of the walk, I get my camel pack out. I pour like a half a gallon of water in it and I don't close the other end of it. So when I put it on, like at mile seven, my back is wet. Key. My rear Rookie end mistake. is wet. Yep. It's like, why would they do that? <laughs> just what doesn't make sense to me. But no, it, it was just a, a great experience. We began by spending the day at Brown AME Church. Where mm-hmm. John Lewis, who was uh, uh, someone who I knew. Was really? A member there. Yes, yes. I have some photos with him. And Getting into good trouble. Yeah, good trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. Spending some time with him, which was really great. At Brown AME, you know, we got a chance to do what I love best is go through archives. So my undergraduate degree is in history. I was a high school history teacher for four years before being a police officer. Everyone says, why you leave teaching to be a cop? I I needed to do something safe. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So I went into being a police, but it was just. But it also speaks to your dedication to public service. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was eye opening. And Jerry just, you know, looking at what people went through at that time and what actually happened. But when you also say at that time, it's not like it's in the eons of history. Yeah. It's all too recent. It's very, very recent. But it lets you know why people are upset. And, you know, the protests were beginning. Right. Mm -hmm. You just see the fire building. But it helped me to understand more, like what happened on that bridge, right? Bloody Sunday, to get to know the story of Jimmy Lee Jackson from the time and place where it happened. A 26-year-old Army veteran protecting his wife and child from an Alabama state trooper's baton was shot and killed. Yeah, You know, that trooper was eventually convicted and when he was like 70, did a couple of months in prison to give people closure. But that actually happened. Yeah, in the lifetimes of people who are still with us. Exactly. So it's still fresh in some people's mind. I can imagine it would never not be. And they've passed that story down. And what you don't understand about the African-American community is that we share our stories. Yeah. That's why I'm a history major, because my great-grandmother would tell me these stories about the Depression and things of that nature. But then it also raises challenges about how to overcome that narrative, because when that narrative spreads and exists as a story that continues within a community, to try and change that narrative from a policing perspective is incredibly challenging. I don't think we should change it. We need to embrace it. We need to embrace it. Think about Germany post-World War II. They didn't try to change the narrative of what happened there. They embraced it, they reconciled, and then they moved on. They didn't erect statutes to say, hey, some of our people were Nazis. 
we just want to put this marker here and have this holiday and we're going to name this street after whoever so that we we don't forget what they did. Right. It's just it's lunacy that we do that here in America. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Edmund Pettus Bridge is not named after a civil rights icon. Same after a person who was, quote unquote, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. That should not be the case. Why do we celebrate that stuff? Especially as nobody's ever really heard of him. And hopefully he should disappear in, <laughs> exactly. you know, into obscurity in history. Exactly. And I mean, how many people did that walk back in the day? Tons of people. And people still do that walk. How long did it take you guys? It took us two and a half days. Got rained on, dogs, all kind of wildlife. <laughs> God. I found out that Tarek, who is the biggest of us all. He's a big lad, yeah. Yeah, big tight end, played ball at Oklahoma State. Doesn't really like dogs, no matter the size. So we learned a lot about each. I'm like, Tarek, that's a Pomeranian. I, I'm, I'm going over here. You're He's walking. picking up the pace heading the other direction. I'm yeah. going to add a few more miles to yeah. this, right? Yeah. Walking with traffic. I'm like, no, man. <laughs> You'd rather get hit in the back by a semi or you'd rather kick a Pomeranian in a... Oh, my God. I'm not going to do that. We learned a lot. What were the sort of lessons or the the meaningful things that you took away from it? I think as we reflected on that last mile, when we really started to talk, we got the adrenaline dump and all, is that people want to be seen. People want to be heard and they want to be accountable to each other. And we get that from the people who stopped. So there were people who had saw us walking, they driving back and forth to work. So they see us, but we don't see them. So in America, people want to be seen for who they are. So this officer who gets out of the car on this domestic or on the shoplifting or whatever it may be, look past the circumstances of where they are and see them as a human being. I mean, post George Floyd, it, I mean, it's been a hell of a time to be a black guy in American policing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Post George Floyd was tough. You know, I had counseling sessions with my officers post-protest, you know, being called all kind of names. And in African-American culture, the worst thing you can be called by another African-American is a house N-word. You can say it here if you like. I mean, I'm good. I might run for president one day, Jerry. There you go. <laughs> Hope you do. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That was the person who was the worst of the worst because he gave away everything for selfish gains, Right. But it was deeper than that because he still had a family. He still had a daughter he didn't want rape. He still had to live in this world. And I can't say that that decision was made lightly, but that's what they they called us. They said, hey, how can you be a part of this system that has literally and figuratively had their knee on the necks of an entire group of people? How do you answer that? By saying... Yes, police have been part of the system. Justice has not always been defined the same throughout our country. Yeah. And so I'm here as a black man to change that. I'm here as a black leader to make decisions to ensure that you see justice in the way it's defined in 2021, not the way it was defined in 1979 in Greensboro when you had the Klan Nazi shootings, when someone thought it was a good idea to allow the Communist Workers Party and the Ku Klux Klan to have a rally at the same place and tell everyone, don't bring guns. It's an honor system. And if any group's got honor, it's those guys, right? Yeah, it's those guys, yeah. It didn't happen that way. And seven people die. Um, And so people still remember that. And so you have to just try to let them know that you want to be part of the solution. That's why I'm here. That's why we are here. And the whole other's accountable. Yeah, because policing's not going anywhere. People think it is. I probably would have said that two years ago. But being in Madison and hearing some of the the rhetoric around policing, I I don't know that that will be the case. I don't know 30 years from now if policing will be the same. 
I, I no, really don't. I, mean, I think it's always going to be around because they're think? all. I think there's a reality that there is a small group of the population who are going to need some kind of care and control, and that does include control. In in some regards, you know, modern policing, we've had it less than 200 years. I mean, think how long we've had medical science. And yes, the field of medicine doesn't look anything now like it did 200 years ago. So I think it's going to keep evolving and changing. And, it, and, and, as, it, and as it should, I can't see it not being around. But I think we need to be having important conversations about what it's going to look like. So I started off as a teacher. I knew about private schools, right? Obviously, I couldn't afford to go to one. But I knew we were losing a lot of kids to private school. And then now my home state of North Carolina a study recently came out and said more kids are being homeschooled than are in private schools. So public schools are losing kids to charter schools, to private schools, to homeschooling. Could public education be obsolete one day? Why couldn't the same thing happen to policing? So now we're taking mental health away from police, which I, I certainly support to a certain degree. We're moving some of our harm focused things away from police to code enforcement. I've seen some departments do community service departments. In other words, now you have 311 yep. as opposed to 911. So I, I have to police and lead as if I might not be here tomorrow. And I think that's the key. It'll keep us honest a little bit. In the end, if you join policing as a public service, if all you're interested in is the output that I'm going to keep paying the mortgage, then you're going to defend policing come hell or high water. Correct. But if you're interested in the outcome, which is improved public safety, right. then yeah, we should be exploring any mechanism to get there. But I'm just not ready yet to throw away the existing mechanism because I don't, I'm worried about there being a void in the middle, you know, especially for the communities that don't have the capacity to hire private security Correct. or to live in a gated community. If we take away what protections that we can give them, until they build those institutions or can find the income to pay for that, they're going to be left with nothing. And, you know, the thing about American policing or America in general is the number of firearms. 400 million long uh, short guns, handguns, probably another 600 million. Is that where we are? 600 million handguns? Estimate? Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at Sense and Nonsense about crime and drugs, Samuel Walker. Right. And uh, they talk about the number of, of. It's crazy here. Yeah. Yeah. He'll tell you that it's too late. It's too late. There are already too many handguns uh, in, in circulation. So that'll be a problem that we'll have to fix if before we could do away with policing in general. You're getting these insights. How has the walk you took changed how you approach your role now? Because not long after you did that walk, you became the police chief in Madison, Wisconsin. Connect the two. How has the walk that you did from Selma to Montgomery changed how you think about the job of being now you're a police chief? I think it changed tremendously because you know, your most vulnerable populations, uh, whoever they may be, they want to know that you understand, you know, what is your pedigree for change. And the walk helped to further my resume or my pedigree on understanding what America is about. Because people who stopped to help us, they weren't just black people. They were white people. They were police. They were truckers. They didn't know what we were walking for. And some of them did. But you get to see what America really is. And they need to hear that in order to move forward. We need reconciliation in our communities and we need to figure out what that looks like. And it helps you be a better listener. We were together for two and a half days. Two and a half days endlessly with our bed. Oh my God, that must have felt like two and a half years. You know, he's going to hate me for saying that. Yeah, he's going to get you. <laughs> we are so different in that, you know, Tariq, he's the planner. Every five minutes, how, how far have we walked? Are we on schedule? And then you have Obed and he's literally bouncing, jumping, and doing jumping jacks. 
And then you have me, I'm just even keel and I'm balancing Obed's energy, keeping him out of the road and I'm balancing Tariq type A. Did you feel at times that you needed some kind of like a leash for toddlers on the pair of them? Yeah, I, I, I really did mentally, certainly, because, <laughs> you know, keeping everyone calm. They were like the old couple with you in the middle trying to be referee. That's exactly right. Yeah. Imagine an odd couple with, with another person. So you've now moved to Madison, Wisconsin, which is a, a department with a long history of innovation. They had Mike Scott, who's been yes. instrumental in advancing problem-oriented policing. And obviously at the university, Herman Goldstein was there, too. What's it been like moving there? You know, one of the things that attracted me to Madison was the history of problem-oriented policing, something, again, I was introduced to as a young officer. I just love the idea that you were not introduced to that at university, but introduced to that as a police officer, because that's also rare. Greensboro does a great job with their leadership development. By the time you are a sergeant, you know at least problem-oriented policing if you don't know anything else and have had to show some experience or you're not going to get promoted down there. You have to have some skin in the game. What have you done? Mm -hmm. And so now our department has four lead scholars, more than any other department. What is the thing for you that you took out of being a lead scholar? That it's not about the result, but it's about knowing how to ask the right question, an appropriate, specific question in order to get to a scientific conclusion. We're in a world of police reform post George Floyd. You're in a fascinating position having the authority of being a police chief, but also being a black man in policing. What are your hopes for where policing reform is going to go? I hope the ultimate goal is to have a police department that's reflective of the community's needs and not reflective of what police want. So we have to think about what does the community want? Healing and reconciliation. What Mm -hmm. does that look like? Uh, Admitting that there may be a better way to do it. We need to think about professionalizing police departments, but we need to start hiring people who are not police to give us more of a perspective. We have to embrace data and science, and we have to handle the issue of racism. Do you have a department that makes it clear to everyone where you stand on issues of gender bias? Where do you stand on issues of race? Where do you stand on issues of of mental health and mental wellness? And if you can do that, I think we'll achieve true police reform. So that means perhaps living with the reality that we're still going to have some disparities, but helping the community understand that and getting their buy-in to the realities of that as we move towards longer crime prevention? Yeah, I, I agree with that. If, if you think about the research from Tom Tyler and, and Tracy Mears on mm-hmm. legitimacy, yeah. you know, how people are treated matters. Right. And so it matters more than the outcome in some cases, right? Yes. You know, uh, if the doctor comes in and says, hey, you've got uh, six months to live, the manner in which he tells you that determine what you're going to do next. And so we our job is to give people bad news from time to time. Yeah. But the manner in which you do it makes all the difference. And how much of a role then do you think that means in having police take a role in helping to educate the public to understand the world in which they're in? No, I think we can do some of that. But I do think the community needs to help us educate the community. Right. Right. So it's like, you know, for me, I can't just come out and tell you all the great things that we're doing. But if a researcher like a Jerry Ratcliffe says, hey, nobody listens to me, mate. (laughs) (laughs) If I turn up, you know, it's never a good day. (laughs) I know. So, hey, this is what's working. Or your local civic leader or your local pastor say, hey, I want to share with you a project that the police Mm -hmm. department is doing to increase uh, traffic safety. 
Sometimes you have to get other people to tell your story. Sometimes you've got to let your ego take a wee step to the side and let somebody else step up front. That is so true. When I first met my wife, I told her I was amazing. I told her, I said, you, you lucked up. And then other people started to say the same thing. Yeah, how did that work out? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, to her credit, she stuck around then, yeah, right? Yeah, it took a while for a callback. I, <laughs> uh, I think she was vetting the information that I gave her. But uh, essentially, I got a date and it worked out. Oh, wonderful. Uh, she's a brilliant scientist, two PhD type. Oh, good grief. Person, yeah. Cancer biology, toxicology. Don't, don't say this the wrong, babe, but you are well punching above your weight. Here. I am. <laughs> yes. I said, man, I said, I, I did well. I did I did well. I make some good decisions. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I follow her. I'm happy for you, man. Hey, I know you've got to go and do a session in a moment at the conference, but for sitting down this afternoon and spending some time with me, thanks ever so much. It's been really fun. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was episode 48 of Reducing Crime, recorded at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Columbia, South Carolina, in August 2021. A link to the 54th Mile Policing Project can be found at reducingcrime.com podcast. Instructors can also DM me at jerry underscore Ratcliffe for podcast support materials and transcripts. Be safe and best of luck.